You know, I really like the, the trumpet, but I, I wish the tuba guy would come every week. Uh, there's something about that underneath everything. I want to make sure that uh, if you didn't get one coming in, there are some books called The Truth of the Cross. They'll be at this door and at that door on your way out. Uh, please feel free just to pick one up. It's written by R.C. Sproul. It is a uh, short, easy to read, but very powerful, very informative book on the things of the cross. So if you have your Bible with you, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. First Peter chapter 1. Now Peter is writing to a group that, boy, is probably under some pretty good persecution for, in a variety of ways. It's not uh, out and out, um, if you profess to be a believer, this is going to cost you your life. It's, it's a little bit more subtle, but it's very pervasive throughout the entire uh, culture in which his audience is. They probably are being everything from insulted to losing their jobs to maybe getting beaten by mobs uh, to uh, perhaps being kicked out of their homes, any, any variety of things. So this is the type of persecution that they are facing at this time. And, and what I would want, you know, from the guy who knew Jesus, the guy who walked with him, uh, I would want some words of hope, frankly. If I was being persecuted for this faith that I would hold so dearly, I would want some words of hope from Peter. Well, it's a good thing because Peter is known as the Apostle of Hope. Uh, Paul would be the Apostle of love or Faith and John would be the Apostle of Love. Peter often has a message that is filled with hope. It is filled with these solid things and these teachings uh, that are just simply... Uh, filled through with the things of hope. So if you're able, would you stand with me and we'll read the three verses that we have for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. Heavenly Father, come upon us today. Fill our hearts with the things of Christ that we might understand them, that we might understand this hope, this inheritance, and the faith that you place within us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, you want to keep your finger there. You could turn over to Romans chapter 5. Now remember, Peter writes so much about hope. He was a guy that, you know, was intimidated by a little slave girl. Remember, that was one of the times where he denied Christ. 
he's, he's out there saying, no, no, I don't know him, I don't know him. And then this little slave girl comes along and says, yeah, that was one of the guys with Jesus. And Peter goes, no, no, not me, not me. You've got to watch out those little slave girls. They can be very tough, okay? She pointed him out as being a follower of Christ. And this was the guy that Jesus said, you'll deny me three times. And he said, no, I'll, I'll die before I do that. He denied Christ three times. But yet Christ is very clear. He said, but Peter, I have prayed for you. I'm going to let Satan sift you, but I have prayed for you. And Peter now has this hope. He understands what it means to, to, to be without worth, to, to deny his, his Lord, but to have that Lord receive him and restore him. Uh, this is the hope that is in Christ alone. Now we turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, just to get a little bit of elaboration on that. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So it's right that we would expect Peter to be this messenger of hope and, and to give the people that he is writing to a word of encouragement. And, and perhaps, you know, Peter's special seven steps to uh, maintaining your, your good image or good attitude in the midst of persecution, or maybe he's going to offer them, what, a special deal on some holy salve to ease their pain from the Roman wounds. Now, that's not what Peter does, okay? That's not what he does. Peter does not give them a band-aid. There are no seven steps here. But in fact, Peter states in a very logical and factual way that they have far more than that they realize. They might be looking for some quick fix, but Peter is giving them this overarching understanding that they have way more than they ever realized that they had. And to do this, he does it in a rather strange form. Now, we just sang a few minutes ago the doxology, remember? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. A doxology is a call to praise. It is a a, uh, sometimes it's just a statement, sometimes it is a song, sometimes it is an entire paragraph. Well, that's what Peter does here. He gives an introduction, the first two verses, and then 3, 4, and 5, he breaks out into this doxology, which is a statement of praise. Now, here are people who are being persecuted. Here are people who are losing their jobs, maybe their homes, all of these things, and they're looking for hope, and Peter gives them hope in a doxology that reminds them of where their salvation comes from, reminds them of what the Lord has done for them, that he has, has given them something that can never be taken away from them. In fact, the Lord says, he says, the Lord has caused you to be born again. And then after that statement, Peter goes on, he shows the vehicle for that saving work, he shows the benefits of that saving work, and then he shows the extent in their lives of that saving work. So let's look at what Peter says, this, this great doxology that he has here. He says, let's examine the first statement. According to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. Well, let's look at his mercy. Go, go back a couple or forward a couple pages to Ephesians chapter 2. 
His great mercy is the motive behind this giving of salvation. This giving and the granting of the eternal life. The eternal life is the same type of life that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit experience. Now, we don't have the eternal life going back as they are infinite and eternal. Our eternal life goes forward. And this is given to us, and it's given to us out of the motivation of our Heavenly Father's great mercy. Ephesians chapter 2, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy. Now, now rich really doesn't, isn't a good enough word. I don't want to put myself above the translators here, but, but filthy rich, really, really rich. I mean, if there's, if there's mercy, the Lord has it. Okay, And he is rich in this mercy, and because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now remember that we were dead in our transgressions. Dead, dead people don't do anything. Dead people don't help. Dead people don't involve themselves. We were dead because of our sin, and God comes out of his mercy and makes us alive. So let's first look at his mercy so that we have an understanding of this. You have been saved because of God's mercy. Now the idea that it requires an act of mercy shows the pitifulness of our condition. It shows the extent of how much we were separated from God and, and simply out of his presence. Because of our sinful condition, we have wicked hearts, we have corrupt minds, we have wicked desires, um, uh, we are slaves to sin, basically. Mercy, understand, is not the same as grace. Mercy is different than grace. Mercy concerns an individual's character or, or condition, whereas grace concerns the guilt which caused the condition. Mercy is something that it extends to us because we are sinful. Grace is what changes our very nature, changes our condition. Our condition is one that is outside of Christ. Grace is extended to us, and we are now brought in, in Christ. Now, those are for, the, for those who are in Christ. And you think, well, what about those who are outside of Christ? Does God just kick them to the curb? Does he not care? Well, no, the Lord cares about every bit of his creation. He grieves over everyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ. You remember when Christ walked the earth? He healed both believers and non-believers. But it is the Lord's business who he will show mercy to. And he makes it very clear, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Now mercy has the connotation of God's compassion towards those who suffer. And great reformer Martin Luther points out, he says, Human nature cherishes the thought that we, through our own strength, our own free will, our own good works, and our own merit, or by keeping God's law, can atone for our sins and acquire eternal salvation for ourselves. But that is the very thing that we must let go of if we want to experience God's mercy. If we deserve salvation, it does not come through God's mercy. We only deserve his wrath because of our great sin, but he has shown mercy to us. We deserve his wrath, but out of his great mercy to us, he causes us to be born again. So that's really, uh, here, here's the, the motivating factor is his mercy and what happens? He causes us to be born again. Jeremiah chapter 13 says, can the Ethiopian change his color or the leopard his spots? And the answer is no. That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Can a person change their nature by themselves? Well, the answer again is no, we cannot. 
John chapter 3, verses 7 and pretty much the end of the chapter is very clear. States unequivocally that we have to be born again. Remember John chapter 3 is this meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, who is a teacher of the law, he should understand these things. And Jesus is, is really laying it on him and says, you, you don't understand this? You have to be born again. And Nicodemus is scratching his head going, uh, how can I crawl into my mother's womb when I am old? Okay? He's thinking literally, and Jesus is thinking spiritually here. You must be born of the Spirit. Let's turn over to John chapter 1 for a moment so that we get an, an idea of this life-giving grace and mercy of our Lord, this life-giving power that comes to us from our Heavenly Father. Now, John chapter 1, John chapter 3 is that Jesus and Nicodemus inter, interchange here in John chapter 1 verse 12, talks, us, talks to us about being born again, about what this means. John 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were, not, who were born not out of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. It's God's will to be born again. So this gives us a reason to praise God. Our salvation does not come from our effort. It doesn't come from our will. It doesn't come from our own performance. I mean, imagine if it did. Imagine what kind of shaky ground our salvation would stand upon. I I don't know about you, but my salvation would be pretty iffy if it was left to Randy. Randy to keep and to guard and to, to base upon my own efforts. I mean... What, some days I've got it together, and some days I'm not even in the same zip code, okay? Some days, you know, it can be something as small. I've got a bad breakfast, so what? I'm out of sorts. So how's my spiritual life? My spiritual life's out of sorts. If my salvation depends upon me, then my salvation is out of sorts. But that's not what it says here. He says, it's not born of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Only God, working through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit can change a sinful heart. Jeremiah 31 tells us that the Lord will make a covenant with his people and he, he will write it where? Right here on our hearts. It just won't be here in the word. It won't be on a stone tablet locked away somewhere. It will be on the hearts of those who belong to him. God is the sole transforming agent He is the soul regenerating agent. Go back to 1 Peter. Let's look at this for a moment. The the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. We're going to look at two words very briefly. This is your chance for uh, your Greek word study for the week. Okay, according to is kata, kata, anagenesis. Kata, according to, anagenesis, begotten. So it is according to, it rests completely in his work, he has begotten us. Okay, that word is used of somebody else, if I can recall. He, uh, he is the only, what son? Begotten son. Okay, that's a particular word. It's not as if he birthed us, but he begot us. He came and he created us and he formed us and he breathed life into us and before the foundations of the earth were laid he had chosen us in Christ Jesus. According to his mercy he has caused us to be born again. 
So God is not just the cause of our regeneration, but he's the sole instrument of our salvation as well. So don't get the idea that he uh, caused us to act so that we would follow him and therefore he would then regenerate us. He has caused us to be born again. He is the one who has done it. And it is to a living hope. And that is exclusive to the believer. The non-believer does not have a living hope. In fact, Job says, such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. Ephesians chapter 2, remember when you were separated from God and without hope? There is a hope that survives and lives and thrives, but it only rests in the work of our Heavenly Father. The believer has a living hope based upon the word and the character of the one who made us. That he will bring all the things that he has promised to a glorious fulfillment. Colossians 1 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope and glory. So this is the hope that prompted Paul to say, In Romans and in other places, this one in Galatians, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then that section we read in Romans chapter 5 about hope, and hope does not disappoint. So, we have this great mercy that causes us to be born again. So what is the vehicle for this work of the Lord to make us born again? It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know it was Easter. I had to say resurrection sooner or later, okay? So let's look here. He is who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the vehicle by which it happens. No resurrection, no hope, no born again. Okay, I hope you understand the way that this is structured. That is the vehicle. It happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is outside the tomb, John chapter 11, uh, 25 and 26. And uh, there's Lazarus who has been dead uh, four days. Remember, four days, how important that is. And Jesus tells Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Don't we all die? This dies. This flesh. But there is eternal life for those who are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds us that if Christ is not raised from the dead, what are we? Fools. Most to be pitied among every person in the world. In Peter's sermon in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Death could not hold him. The grave could not hold him. Now Peter was an eyewitness to this resurrection. He ate and he drank with Jesus after he came out of the grave. Peter's not preaching some pie in the sky. Well, it's, it's kind of ethereal and nebulous, but, uh, you know, this resurrection that we talk about, about Jesus, really affects us in some great way, and we are spiritually enlightened by it. No, he's none of that. He says, I saw the guy. I ate with the guy. I spent time with the guy. I touched him. He came out of the tomb in the same body that went in. It was a physical resurrection. Peter is preaching that fact. It was Sunday morning after the 
crucifixion. Maybe a morning like this. And the two ladies go to finish their job in preparing the body. And they get to the tomb and the stone's been rolled away and the body is not there. And they come running back. And, and here are, are the apostles. They're gathered together and they're just, they're just wringing their hands. I don't know, what are we going to do? You know, the guy that we invested with these last three years, he's dead. And, and what are we going to do? The Romans are going to come and get us. And the ladies show up and say, what? He's gone. So Peter and John, they tear off. Now, John's younger, and, and Peter's kind of older. And, and so John zooms ahead, and, and he waits at, at, at the tomb, and, and, and he lets Peter go in first. And what does Peter see in the tomb? What? No, Jesus. <laughs> okay, just like the ladies had said. And that stone had been rolled away so they could see in and see it was empty, see that he had risen from the grave. So third... What's the benefit of this? It's the vehicle is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? To obtain an inheritance. To obtain an inheritance. Now, an inheritance is defined as wealth which is passed down or the legacy one receives as a member of a family. Now, for years I chided my parents that they weren't wealthier to leave me more. Um, But maybe their legacy, you know, maybe there's a legacy there that, that I'm getting, okay? In the Old Testament, this word that is translated inheritance in the New Testament deals with that portion of land that was promised to the people of God, the promised land. Okay? Each tribe was given their section. So just as Israel received her inheritance, and remember Paul's audience is probably made up of Jewish converts to Christianity, so the church receives a spiritual inheritance as well. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. This is, uh, the first chapter of Ephesians is just so great. It is so great. And this one portion that we're going to read deals with the importance of inheritance and what that means in our lives and what the Lord has promised us. Remember, it is an inheritance. It is given to us. It is not ours. It is given to us to us. Ephesians chapter 1, I'll start in uh, verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. It is an inheritance, and the pledge which is given to us as a sign and as a seal of that inheritance is the Holy Spirit who comes in each believer's life at the moment of conversion. The Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. That inheritance is guaranteed to each believer by the Lord. Guaranteed by the Lord. Now remember, I re- Revert back to that, what if it relies upon Randy's work? What if that guarantee would rely upon Randy doing X, Y, and Z and doing X, Y, and Z perfectly? Would I have any inheritance? No. I don't remember the last time I did anything perfectly, let alone the thing that would, be, that would guarantee eternal life for me. It is the Lord who does those things perfectly. It is the Holy Spirit given to us as a pledge. 
Romans chapter 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. So this inheritance, it goes on in list, is imperishable. Not corruptible, not liable to death or subjection or destruction. Now the promised land that was the inheritance of the Israelites was really dependent upon their faithfulness to the Lord. Now, now he was faithful all the time, but, but so often they would go and they'd chase idols and they'd run off and do their own thing. They lost that land. Our inheritance is not based upon our keeping it. It is based upon the Lord's protection of it. It is imperishable. It goes on to say that our inheritance is undefiled. It is unstained. It is unpolluted, unstained or polluted by what? Our own sin. Our inheritance next will not fade away. Our inheritance will never lose its magnificence. See, we have this treasure in clay jars Paul talks about. So the Lord places it within us, the likes of us. We have this inheritance. It is kept for us. It will never lose its magnificence. There's no decaying elements of this world will ever have any impact upon the inheritance will never have any impact upon the kingdom of heaven. Time, sin, can't touch our inheritance. Our inheritance is kept in heaven. Now, heaven is secure. Nothing unclean, Revelation 21 says, nothing unclean can ever enter into heaven. And that is where this inheritance is kept. It is reserved, meaning it is guarded over. It is watched. It is preserved by our Heavenly Father. Now here I gave you the Greek lesson before I give you the English lesson today. Now, this word kept or preserved is a perfect passive participle. Now, when I had Russian in college, there were like 300 of these we had to learn. We just call them PPPs. It was an entire semester we learned this. This was a big part of the Russian language. This word, kept or guarded, means a perfect, it's a perfect passive participle, means it conveys the idea of the already existing inheritance being carefully guarded in heaven. When were you chosen in Christ? Ephesians 1, before the foundations of the earth. This inheritance is already existing. It is guarded in heaven and kept for us there. It is kept, reserved, watched over by our perfect Heavenly Father. Those circumstances in this life can increase or diminish it. It is as good as it gets. We would want no more. See, that's our hope. That's the inheritance that is kept for us. Not only the inheritance, but those who possess it are protected by the power of God. You say, well, Rand, what if I just pitch this faith out? What if I just say, Lord, I've had enough of this. I'm going to turn my back on you. How can you turn your back on somebody who has claimed you as your very own, as his very own? I mean, if you turn your back on the Lord and pitch him out and deny him, you didn't know him. Okay, if he's the one who does the saving, he's the one whose hand you rest in. Remember Romans chapter 8 says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The last portion of this is, it is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. As our continued faith is evidence of God's keeping and protecting work. John chapter 8 says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples.
There's one last thing here. What is the extent of this inheritance? What is the extent of this saving work of our Heavenly Father? The last portion of verse 5, the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God will not make this inheritance fully complete until the last episode of history, and that is the return of Christ. We have to read a little bit about this. Turn back a couple pages to Revelation chapter 22. In fact, if you like, in a few moments, you can come up and sing some of this as we are going to sing the Hallelujah Chorus in a few moments and and the music at each side. Donald will remind you of this. Revelation 22. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be on it. And his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night. And they shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor of the light of the sun. Because the Lord God shall illumine them. And they shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. This is the work of the Lord. This is the keeping of our inheritance until this moment when all these things are are shown to us. So Peter is saying the inheritance that believers have is, is that full and final salvation. It's salvation from the curse, salvation from the power of sin, salvation from the presence of sin in our lives, from all decay, from every stain, from all temptation, from all grief, all pain, all death, all punishment, all judgment, all wrath, it is eternal, full salvation. This is what the Lord keeps for us. He is the, the source of the believer's inheritance. It came because of his mercy. It comes through us through the new birth, the regeneration, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the question we have to deal with every Easter is, do we know this? Okay? Do we know and believe that the tomb is empty? Do I know and believe that, that in God's great mercy, he has called me by name and drawn me unto himself and caused me to be born again and provided for me an inheritance that is kept perfect for all time? Have you placed your hope in Jesus Christ or is it in something else? Paul says if you hope in something else, you're without hope. You're without hope. Maybe you felt that way recently. Maybe you felt that you had no hope. Maybe you felt that life is a big disappointment. Maybe there's something going on. I don't know. Maybe you thought if if my life could only be like so-and-so's life, it'd be so much better. My marriage could only be like their marriage. Man, we would be happy. If I only had that job, I would be happy. Your hope is in Christ. That's the starting place. If it's not there, then you have no hope. If your hope is in this life, then it's time to realize that your struggles and your hardships and your pains and everything you have experienced in your life has led you to this single moment so that you can finally put your hope and trust and faith in the risen Lord because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord, we don't come here 
because we have no hope. We come here because you have implanted this hope within us, because our hope is in Jesus Christ. The tomb is empty. Because he came out, we will come out. Because your mercy is great. Because your mercy is bestowed upon us. Because your grace is given to us. I don't have any righteousness of my own. I must rely upon the righteousness of Christ. He had no sin of his own, and he took mine. And he didn't take just mine. He took everybody's who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We profess with our mouth and believe with our hearts. Your word says we will be saved. We will know this grace. We will know this hope, the living hope of Jesus Christ. Fix this within our hearts today, Lord. We ask in his name. Amen.